Welcome back. We are here for another episode of our weekly podcast. This week, we will be talking to you all about how the nature of democracy has shifted in France during its tenure as a form of viable government. My name is James Henderson. I'm going to be specifically talking about the French Revolution during this time and giving you a little bit of an introduction onto how democracy actually started in France and where it went after that. My name is Drew Williams. I'll be talking about the Bourbon Restoration and kind of the challenges to democracy stemming out of it and how conservatives and liberals both kind of conformed to the same fear of democracy while at the same time accepting some of the precedents that were set during the French Revolution. My name is Joe Ostrowski and I'll be talking about the 1830 Revolution in France and the shift from the Bourbon monarchy's idea of restoring the old order into a sense of revival of French Revolution ideals in the July monarchy. Hi guys, I'm Kelly White. I'll be talking about the February Revolution and February days of 1848 and specifically be looking at the political factions um, like socialism and uh, moderate Republicans during this time period. Hello, my name is Ben Hassan. My focus for this paper or this podcast is more aligned with the Second French Empire from 1852 to 1870 where Napoleon III reigned over France. Napoleon used this unstable French government to seize power, economic prosperity, and suffrage to keep it, and ultimately overreaches his abilities and falls. So first we'll give you a little history to our topics and then get into our, uh, our talk for today. Awesome. So with that amazing lineup, set your minds in 1789. The French Revolution, one of the most explosive periods in European history. During this time, France started as one of the prominent, preeminent, absolute monarchies in Europe and slowly transitioned into modern democracy in this explosive, violent revolution. So, slightly preceding this, France was one of the biggest monarchies in Europe. This was embodied by Louis XIV, the Sun King, whose famous phrase, l'état et moi, essentially symbolizes and brings together absolute monarchy. So Europe at this time was dominated by different forms of monarchies, all of which had varying degrees of absolutism. However, prior to the French Revolution, the nature of monarchy, at least in France, had changed drastically. The aristocracy slowly gained power due to a combination of political and economic and social conditions, and as a result, the legitimacy and power of the monarchy was slowly sliding back. Prior to the actual beginning of the revolution, democratic ideals were expressly articulated by Abbe Emmanuel Joseph Siez, who presented the first clear ideological account of modern French democracy. This was the foundational premise from which democracy in the French Revolution and later French regimes spurred. This was nested primarily in the notions of popular sovereignty and representation, primarily through the exclusion of the third estate, which Siez argued really constituted the nation and constituted all forms of sovereignty and legitimacy of political rule. This was a significant deviation from the Athenian model, where everyone participates in government and frankly shaped the nature of democracy through France in the coming years. These values by Siez were picked up by the National Assembly and then were also embodied in founding documents such as the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen and the French Constitution, which was ratified by King Louis XVI. Following the ratification of the Constitution and later removal and execution of the King, the French Constitution was unique because it combined democratic elements with prior existing the systems of monarchy. It included both the King, Louis XVI, and representation throughout all of France. However, following the, king's following the king's execution, only the people were left, and this provided the first foundation of purely democratic legitimacy where a government was ruled just by representatives of the people. 
However, following the French Revolution's eventual overthrow by Napoleon and then Napoleon's eventual fall from power, democracy receded in France and was completely vilified. Primarily, the values of popular sovereignty and representation were attacked as root causes and attributed to the failure of democracy. So following the collapse of Napoleon's power in 1815, you saw the return of the Bourbon kings. And the Bourbons had been exiled when King Louis XVI was assassinated, executed, excuse me. And essentially they had returned to a country that had irrevocably changed. So it was the nation they inherited was one of overwhelming inconsistency and clashing interpretations of legitimate authority. So whereas in the past the king was obviously the absolute authority, the French had lived under some form of democratic ideals, albeit it was bastardized under Napoleon and centralized behind one man who hid behind the bill of democracy. They still had these ideas of liberty, egality, and fraternity, instilled in them for so long that the idea of absolute monarchy had become almost alien to the French. Despite this fact, though, it was very clear that popular sovereignty and universal male suffrage for men was seen as one of the root causes for the terror and one of the root causes for all the violence in the Napoleonic Wars. And as such, both reformers and conservatives vilified any view of unconstrained democracy. So the two major political parties that arose during this time were the ultra-royalists, who were loyal to the new, newly installed Bourbon monarchs, and the liberals, who viewed some form of limited democracy as viable to a check on the king's power. They didn't want to go back to the absolutism of the ancient regime, but they also realized that there was some need for social hierarchy in France. So the liberals weren't really interested in establishing a new social basis for government. Right. They, they realized that, of course, things had changed in France, and so did the ultra-royalists, too. They realized that they couldn't just go back to the way things were. And as such, they issued the Charter of 1815, which was a document of very clashing inconsistencies. The charter was seen as a concession from the king, who he himself believed that all authority over France derived from him. But he was nevertheless forced to grant certain new concessions and institutions to the people. The liberals, on the other hand, were represented by men such as Francois Guizouel, who viewed individual liberties, suffrage for the wealthy men, and the absolute freedom of the market as absolute musts in this new French society. And we get really into the 1830 revolution in France with the address of the 221, which was given to King Charles X by uh, 221 members of the French chamber in 1830. And essentially what this bogged down to was the liberals had grown a large representation within the French parliament in the elections of 1827 and 1830, and they actually achieved a sudden majority within the French parliament. And so they now actually had a leg up in the chamber de deputies, and they held a lot of political momentum within France, but King Charles was unwilling to defer decisions to them and attempted to undermine their authority within the parliament. In fact, King Charles actually attempted to change the French constitution in 1830 in order to bypass their authority. And from this we get King Louis-Philippe and the change of the King of France into the King of the French into a more uh, popular sovereignty in which the will of the people was reflected by the king and it was a more popular regime. And you see a lot of contrasts between uh, the pre-1830 and the post-1830 political, religious, and economic landscape within France, mainly with the rise uh, and the fall of Catholicism in the forefront of society. Uh, and under King Charles, the Bourbon Restoration, uh, the monarchy had used the political influence of the monarchy 
in order to re-expand the power of the Catholic Church in France, and as well as establish it as the sole religion within the nation at the forefront once again. However, under King Louis-Philippe and the 18, new 1830 Constitution, the reversal of Bourbon-era religious focuses made France more religiously tolerant and also significantly removed religion from the forefront of French society and government. Uh, some examples of this are the monarchy removed religious symbols from public buildings and abandoned some of its efforts to keep Catholic schools running that were sponsored by the government and provide scholarship to Catholic students at universities. And so for these and a lot of other promises that Louis-Philippe made, he was praised in his early years of being king for equality and also for doubling the enfranchisement within France from a level of about 94,000 under Charles X to about 200,000 by 1848. However, with all these changes for the positive, including secularism and increased enfranchisement, this only encompassed about 1% of the population and this enfranchisement was tax-based, meaning that it only included the wealthiest of the French population. And many historians, in fact, argue that the rise of the July monarchy in France did very little for the introduction of universal suffrage in France, and actually did very little for the development of politics within France. And while the July monarchy seemed in the first few years to signify a re-emergence of the 1789 French Revolution ideals and some sense of forward progress for the French liberals, uh, many historians argue that the July Revolution actually ended in 1832, and that marked the end of any sort of illusory hope for progress within France. And a lot of this was due to an overall fear of the instability of that representative government under King Louis-Philippe. And the monarchy ended up falling back to many of the conservative practices that existed during the decades past and even centuries past, and especially under the Bourbon monarchy. And overall failed to create any sort of widespread representation for the French people in government outside the select few wealthy land-owning men. And a brief word from our sponsors. Quick shout out to Professor Thank you, Professor Hobbs. We really appreciate you and all the work you've done this semester. Let's give him a quick hand, everyone. Now back to our regular program. Okay, so now we're in the year 1848. King Louis Philippe is still in charge of France. Starting in about 1845, a revolution began to stir. The economy was in a continuous decline. Populations began to rise, and the society, such as the economy, supplies, and land, also began to cause conflicts amongst individuals in France. Rapid industrialization began. Many individuals chose to move to less densely populated areas, spreading to the suburbs and the countryside. The cities began to struggle to manage sewage, water, and transportation. The living conditions for the poor class and tenements was subpar, contributing to a large divide between the upper class and the poor. With all these problems going on in France, political leaders began to rally and form political banquet campaigns. At these banquets, political leaders and activists of, of the opposition to the king discussed the failures of the electoral reform bill and worked to gain awareness for reform. These leaders worked closely with newspapers to spread the news and assist in national campaigns. The revolutionaries demanded a republic and fought for the end of Louis Philippe's reign after a speech from the government about maintaining the same policy on reform. February 22nd marked a day of violent outbreaks and attacks on armed guards and soldiers. Protesters would throw stones, set fires, smash lights, and break into gun shops. The protesters felt deprived of the constitutional values supposedly set in France in betraying its honors. 
Riots began to develop further as the communication between military leaders and soldiers was cut off. Many prisoners were released and joined the riot, attacking soldiers if they had the opportunity. Due to much confusion and violence, a massacre occurred, furthering the revolutionary and causing over 100 casualties, further escalating the revolution. The political movements and factions before and during the revolution of 1848 are significant in understanding the revolution and the struggles for democratization. Napoleon III was elected to the presidency of France with a democratic election, but there was a term limit, so as he saw his time coming to an end in power, he decided that he needed to become the emperor. The only way to do this was by force, so he decided to create a coup. The name of this was the Coup d'état of December 2nd, 1851. In this coup, Napoleon was able to put people that would oppose his rule in prison with the help of the Bonapartists. These were a political faction that supported the family of the Bonapartes, and in this case, it was Napoleon III. In order to stage such a coup, he needed military officers that would back him in order to crush any resistance that would come about because of the coup. Throughout Napoleon's reign, it was clear to the people that legitimacy was going to be his issue the entire time he was in power. In order to stop people from opposing him, he would not let other political factions have a voice. He put on grand he put on grandiose events in order to make it seem like people really liked him, but they were just being overspoken. These two specific political factions were known as the Republicans and the Legitimists. They both used different tactics in order to gain support from the people, but most of the time they were just put down by Napoleon and his policies. Napoleon III's rule came to an end when he was captured by Prussian army at Sedan in 1870 and was dethroned by the French Republicans. Ben, thanks for that. Those are some great points, and it really helps make sense of a really complicated topic in French history, um, which is just how democracy is represented by all these different political groups and how it's changed over a really long period of time. Um, one thing that I think is really important to look at, too, is the conservative response to democracy from various political groups. Um, Starting from the French Revolution, really uniquely, it's important to recognize an important nuance in French democracy, which was at the time, there were actually two forms of democracy, um, one called re total, the other called république. Uh, re total can essentially be defined as a popular sovereignty that's unmediated and emphasizes the unity of the people. Sounds good, right? The second one, république, was understood as a mediated form of sovereignty, which was a little more moderate, that didn't rely on a strict unity of the people. Now, the problem was the Jacobins, led by Robespierre, used Ray Tautel as a tool to cement their grip on political power. They used it to demand the need for this virtuous nation, and what this did, what this did was and what this did was create an exclusionary vision for the French citizenry and justify the political repression of internal and external enemies of the Republic. Enemies of the Republic. So following the end of the French Revolution, the end and the fall of Bonaparte, this allowed European conservatives something to really directly attack as a point of French democracy. French democracy was equivalent French democracy was essentially equated with Ray Total, the extreme interpretation of the Jacobins. It was viewed as a threat to European order, society, and well-being. Consequently, Following the French Revolution, democracy remained immensely unpopular outside of France with only a few radicals explicitly identifying themselves with the movement and the cause behind it. So for much of Europe, the French Revolution represented the first real democratic experiment in Europe, 
but it left a really deep and dirty stain on the idea of democracy. People didn't want it afterwards. So this left democracy in a really precarious position following the French Revolution, something that was going to have to be fixed in the years to come to actually socialize the idea and make it acceptable for political elites, but just citizens in Europe all around the continent. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, to us today in the present, it, it, it would appear, right, that like liberals it, during like the post-revolution time period weren't very radical and weren't very progressive. But I think it is important to note also that they were essentially the most progressive people throughout continental Europe at the time. And so I think that it, it does shed some light onto like the importance of how society progresses. And I think change, you know, obviously doesn't occur overnight. The French Revolution is proof of that because with such drastic and radical changes, you get a couple hundred years of, of fighting over what the legacy is and like to what degree those ideals were actually legitimate. Your talk about religion also brings up an interesting point back in 1848. In 1848, we have this idea of a moderate Republican because political parties were so similar and had similar values. Specifically, the moderate Republicans wanted to impose that Christian ethic and the values and good values within the household that is common throughout a lot of other time periods. Moderate Republicans believe that the influence of the clergy should be limited for religion and should be a matter only discussed in private. Religion also played a big role in socialism at this time and also made a big focus on Christianity and the importance and expectations of family and society. Religion, that's fascinating. There surely must have been a lot of paranoia associated with that. Yeah, and we see the significance of paranoia, especially in the 1830 revolution. And there's a sense within the Bourbon monarchy, especially under Charles X, that Republicans within the nation were constantly on the verge of revolt against the monarchy. And although in reality the French Republicans, in fr uh, and although in reality the French Republicans may not have had the means or manpower to carry out any sort of serious opposition to the king, the idea of continuing where France left off in 1789 was very appealing to a lot of French liberals and also scary to the monarchy. And this paranoia by the Bourbon regime of the mass result was a big driving force for actions like mass purges of government officials, extensive authoritarianism, and eventually the situation described earlier about the address of the 221, where the king tried to undermine the authority of parliament. So you see the role that paranoia has in the development of democracy within France, and especially within French government. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, to us today in the present, it, it, it would appear, right, that like liberals, it, during like the post- revolution time period weren't very radical and weren't very progressive, but I think it is important to note also that they were essentially the most progressive people throughout continental Europe at the time. And so I think that it, it does shed some light onto like the importance of how society progresses. And I think change, you know, obviously doesn't occur overnight. The French Revolution is proof of that because with such drastic and radical changes, you get a couple hundred years of, of fighting over what the legacy is and like to what degree those ideals were actually legitimate. On the idea of radicals, similarities between the political parties in this time is because they were all identified as radicals. Moderate Republicans and socialists alike were all these radical thinkers that went against the idea of the king. And this is something that goes right back to the foundations of democracy because in the French Revolution everyone was radical, rebelling and pushing back against this monarchial foundation that had really defined the political foundations of Europe for, for centuries at this point. Um, so I find it really interesting that that fact, although it changes um, in, in an area as democracy is better socialized and it's more accepting, but also at different times in French history too, you just see it as this, as this collision of radical doctrines, at least to some people, and I find that fascinating. 
Right. That's exactly what I wanted to throw in there. I, I think that French history during this entire time span is kind of an oscillation between two extremes. And there isn't any clear direction on what the country really is following the execution of the king. As, even as far back as that, there isn't really any clear direction after that point where the country should go. And so once one extreme fails, it's back to the other. And then again, it's back to another until eventually some stability was found after the collapse of Napoleon and a few failed republics had passed. Yeah, that is clearly a common theme of just everything being stagnant. And they try really hard, something happens, and then it goes back to the way it was, or they regress and go into this endless cycle. I think that's a great point. And even looking to the foundations of the French Revolution, we do see this trend from radicalism. But actually, if you want to think about it in a more expanded version, we can even look at the absolute monarchy as this kind of radical vision of unipolar role. Of, of unipolar rule. And as things transition from the monarchy and power goes to the aristocracy and eventually it swings all the way to the people, we just see this tension and oscillation where democracy in France really is the balancing and integration and incorporation of lots of different political ideals and values. And ultimately, that is what gives French democracy its own unique flair. That's what gives it this, this unique, that's what gives it this unique flavor and that's what makes it so interesting and so fun to study too. Thanks, guys, for listening to our podcast. I hope you learned something. Go Navy. Beat Army.